that helps them to kind of get into this problem of other other people's minds. Like, why do we start thinking about other people's minds? And so I think that that's a really interesting problem because as hard as it is for adults, it must be really hard for kids. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy Hovington, and I'm your host. I am a mom of three, and I have a doctorate degree in neuroscience. And we are here to share science with you and also to connect with other parents so that you feel less alone in your journey. Today, I'm talking with a researcher from Queen's University. His name is Dr. Mark Saba, and we're going to discuss theory of mind. You may not have heard of theory of mind before, and this is why I want to bring it up. It's one of those cognitive skills that we might not think of when we're playing with our child or when we're trying to think of skills that we want to work on with our child. I feel that we often focus on all the academic stuff when it comes to our kids and maybe we need to just understand a little bit more about other skills like executive functions, theory of mind, the social emotional learning aspect, which is why I wanted to connect with Mark. Now, I don't know if you know, but on our website at curiousneuron.com, there is a section if you click on free resources under that is participate in a research study. And Mark's lab, including many other labs from Canada and the States and Europe, are up on the website and I'm connecting with as many labs as I can so that I could bring you the research that you can participate with either your baby or your young child or even yourself if you're pregnant. We have studies from labs that um, look at pregnancy. So these are all ways that we could get to understand our child a little bit more. We could get to understand our situation a little bit more through research and to help science help move it forward. Um, so you could visit curiousneuron.com for that. Before we begin, I would like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute at the Neuro here in Montreal for supporting the Curious Neuron podcast. I would also like to invite you to rate the Curious Neuron podcast on iTunes. Please leave a rating out of five stars and a review. Let me know if you're enjoying it, which parts you enjoy of this podcast, and that would be really helpful and meaningful to us. Also, if you'd like to follow us and learn more, we are on Instagram at Curious underscore Neuron, and you can also follow just the podcast itself at Curious Neuron Podcast, um, where we just keep you up to date with you, new episodes. I do receive um, emails from parents who want to make sure that they're doing the right thing while they're playing. And I'm hoping that part of the take-home message from this conversation with Mark is that, you know, a lot of it is through play and it's simplicity, it's pretend play, it's asking certain questions that will lead to thinking, that will lead to understanding somebody else's point of view, understanding emotions. So a lot of that is through play and specifically pretend play, which we will discuss today. If you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram, or you could email me at info at I love getting emails from you. I, I, you know, this is a community and I want to continue the conversation around this. Um, also, now I'll be posting weekly on Monday mornings. I'd love for you to wake up and you have your podcast episode ready to go, ready to start your week with a new skill or a new tool in your parenting toolbox. And that is the whole goal of Curious Neuron. Let's move on to today's episode. 
take out your Curious Neuron Notebook. It's one that you'll need to take notes again. And I really hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Mark Saba. And I will see you on the other side. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. I am Cindy, your host, and I'm here with Marion. Hi, Marion. Hello. Good to see you all. <laughs> good, good to see you. And today we are joined by Dr. Mark Saba, um, who is from Queen's University. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. We are talking about a, a, a subject that 77% of parents on the Curious Neuron platform on Instagram said they had no idea what it was. So I think we're going to have a lot to talk about today because they did have a lot of questions. Today we're talking about theory of mind and this is your field of research um, and your expertise and we'd love to learn more about this I think here at Curious Neuron and Mary and I have a lot of questions. Great. <laughs> How about we begin by defining what theory of mind is? Sure, yeah. So theory of mind yeah, it's kind of a funny term. So theory of mind is our everyday understanding of why people do the things that they do. And so when we see somebody do something, we aren't just interested in what happened, but we also want to know why it happened. And the things that we use to explain other people's behavior is their mental states. So their beliefs, their desires, their intentions. And that's what we mean by having a theory of mind. That sounds quite complex <laughs> as a skill to have. How does this, at what age does it start developing in kids? Well, it probably is there right from the very beginning. Even young infants are, they're, they're curious about not just what's happening in the world, but also why those things are happening. And they seem to have some, even young infants seem to have some understanding that that people are doing things for reasons that are internal to themselves, that they are, that they have intention or that they want to do things. But those kind of early mental state understandings like intentions and it's, it's not really the whole story, I guess, you know, because we don't just do things because, because we mean to, we also do things because we want to, and because we think that by doing a particular thing, we'll, we'll get a particular outcome. And what that means is that uh, those those later aspects of it, or those other aspects, those more complicated aspects actually develop a little bit later. So while young infants seem to have some understanding of things like intentions, uh, it's not until a little bit later that they start to understand other people's desires, and then still later that they start to understand other people's beliefs and uh, and then and then everything really kind of takes off from there. So there is this kind of really typical kind of developmental trajectory of it. Is it something that parents need to nurture within their homes? The neat thing about theory of mind is that it's something that we all do very, very naturally. So when you're thinking about why, you know, we've probably all had those moments where, you know, we wonder why did somebody do something? And when when we try to figure out what people are doing, the things we talk about are their mental states. They're, you know, oh well, maybe they wanted this, or maybe they thought this, or or maybe they maybe they meant something about in the in the behaviors that they did. And so when we do those things, we actually when we're trying to figure out what other why other people did the things they do, we talk about it. And it turns out that that kind of talk, especially when it's directed to kids, actually plays a big role in their development of those concepts. And so you don't really need to do it because it's just something that we do naturally. Uh, you don't really need to like focus on nurturing it. At one point when you were talking, I, I was thinking of relationships yeah, yeah. <laughs> where you're sort of, yeah. <laughs> I, I know we're talking about kids, but that came to mind where you're like, and you're trying to interpret yes. or you're trying to yeah. think of what they're thinking yeah. about. And it's, it's hard sometimes, right? Like I'm, I'm assuming a lot of how we were brought up or how it was nurtured within us in our environment 
because I know we're talking about kids, but I'm wondering as a parent too, the way that you develop that skill might play into how you'll help your child in a sense. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. People are, are differ in, in how much they're interested, I think, in other people's mental states. And that can be just one sort of natural thing that varies among people. But you know, one of the things that you mentioned that I think is really intriguing about this, especially from a developmental perspective, is how hard it is to do. So you know, we've all been perplexed by other people's actions and wondering why in the world did they do that? What, you know, what were they thinking? What was their, you know, we had, that's, that's a pretty common question. What were you thinking? And what, what's neat about it from a developmental perspective is that how do we even know that mental states are there? Like we can't really see mental states. We can't, I don't know what your beliefs are. I don't know what your desires are in any given moment. And certainly there's no uh, obvious sort of like physical manifestation of them, if you know what I mean. Like they don't really exist in a place where you can see them. We have to make these inferences that they're there. And so a really, really fascinating question, you know, as hard as that is for adults, because we have to kind of rely on all this other stuff, there's this really important and interesting developmental question, which is how do kids even know that they're there at all? Like, how do they get that kind of insight that make, that helps them to kind of get into this problem of, other other people's minds. Like, why do we start thinking about other people's minds? And so I think that that's a really interesting problem because as hard as it is for adults, it must be really hard for kids to be thinking about like, oh, wait, what are these belief things that everybody kind of keeps talking about? How do we kind of triangulate on the, on the conceptual nature of beliefs? And I think that that's a really fascinating question. I, I think that is a great segue into your research because I'd love to understand with what you just said, given how complex it is, how do you study this in kids? You know, we study it in preschool age children. And um, so a little bit after infancy, between kid, when kids are between the ages of three and about five, we do a whole bunch of different stuff. We, we have in the past looked at the language that kids hear. Parents, like just when they're in naturalistic kinds of conversations with their kids, normally what we do is we bring them in a lab and we have them read a storybook or something like that. What we do is we look at individual differences. So, you know, differences, some moms will read these stories or some parents, I should say, will read these stories and they'll talk a lot about other people's mental states. And then other parents will tell We'll tell a really compelling story, but we'll do it with maybe less reference to mental states. So what we've looked at is how those individual differences might kind of shape the timetable of young children's sort of development, the, the developments that occur around the ages of three and five, which we measure just with a bunch of standard laboratory tasks. People have been doing theory of mind research for like 30 or 40 years now. And so there's a kind of standard battery of laboratory tasks that we can use to kind of measure theory of mind, which is great for us because then we can start to actually think about, well, what are the factors that are helping this development along? We have this nice stable measure of it. So that's one of the things we do is actually look at those kinds of experiences that might matter. Did you find that if a parent does reflect more on mental states, that there was a correlation to the theory of mind? And Yeah, there is. Yeah. So it's, it's actually, it's a pretty well-established finding now in the literature where the more you know, parents' tendencies to talk about mental states do seem, in fact, to be causally related to their children's ultimately, you know, the, the timetable at which kids kind of acquire these, these uh, theory of mind concepts along the way. You know, and it's just natural variation. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that, well, parents should now go out and talk to their kids about theory of mind because we're talking about relatively small developmental effects, you know, so 
maybe kids will be three or four months ahead. Everybody winds up, all healthy children wind up developing theory of mind on this kind of normal, on this typical timetable. And what's really interesting is that it seems to happen all over the world. You know, between the ages of three and five, they go through this, you know, children all over the world go through this transition where they start to understand my beliefs, one person's beliefs can be different from another person's beliefs. So that you can think something about the world that's different from what I think about the world. How about if you look at at boys versus girls? Do you start to see any differences? So, and the short answer is no, but the but the long answer is that it's hard to tell because whatever effect is there in the sort of literature or in the in the in the research, whatever effect we might see for being boys versus girls is probably really really small, which would mean that we would have to have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of participants to do it. And all other theory of mind effects all are big. And so like the, you know, the difference between a three and a four-year-old on these tasks is the difference between a four and a five-year-old on these tasks. They're all big. So we've all been kind of aiming at trying to understand those big effects. We don't need very many participants to do those. So they tend to be pretty small studies, which means that when we want to go study the, um, any potential sex or gender effects, we don't really have the power to do it. So nobody's ever reported meaningful sex or gender effects, but nobody's really done a big old study. That would allow us to do it as far as I know. And I just looked literally the other day because I was interested in it for another reason. And so I don't, I don't know of anybody who's done it, but it's kind of a tricky one to find. You mentioned that it is a battery of tests that you look at, but I think maybe to kind of give a picture to parents understanding what this battery, not the entire battery, but I was going through and it's really interesting to, to see the questions you ask. And there's one with a puppet, I believe. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Just so that they have an idea, because I think sometimes it is still quite complex to understand how it's studied. Sure. So the kind of classic task that we use is called the false belief task. And it comes in two varieties, what we call the, the location task or the contents task. So I'll tell you the location task first. Maxi and his mom come home from grocery shopping and they bought some chocolate while they were out grocery shopping. Maxi's putting away the chocolate and he puts it into the cabinet that's on the right side of the kitchen. So he puts it in there and then he goes out to play. And while he's gone, his mom takes a little bit of the chocolate out, breaks some off to use for some uh, cake. And then she puts, she wraps it up and she puts it away. But mom doesn't put it back on the right side of the uh, kitchen. She puts it in a cabinet on the left side of the kitchen. So, and then she goes out and she's all done. So now Maxie's been out playing for a little while and he's very hungry. Uh, and he's thinking to himself, gosh, I'd really like to go get some of that chocolate. So he comes back into the kitchen and then we stop the story and we say, where do you think Maxie's going to look for the chocolate? Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey. Well done, Cindy. Yeah. Uh, um, you would think because so so the, the situation is here that as as the observer, the kid, you, uh, you know where the chocolate is and that it's on the left. And you also know that Maxie thinks something other than that because he didn't see it move. He st should still think it's in this, or the original location. So what we, so what we say is that Maxie has a false belief about the location of the chocolate. And what we find is that three-year-olds don't seem to get this. When, when, three -year -old, when we ask three-year-olds, they come back to the room, we say, hey, where's Maxie going to look for the chocolate? They say, he's going to look in the new location over on the left side of the, over on the, left side of the kitchen where 
where it is now, seeming to fail to recognize that, oh, wait, he didn't see it move, so he should look over here first. So three-year-olds bomb almost entirely. Four-year-olds, about 50% can get it right. And then five-year-olds, they're doing very well at this ta- at that task. I like that illustration. Mm. I would say I had a, a, a psychologist friend over and, and it's reminding me. And she she did that. I think my, my daughter was somewhere in that age and she's like, let's do an experiment. And she did exa- something very similar. There was a teddy bear and the teddy bear had to leave the room. And, and I can't remember if she passed or failed, but Cindy, you have a three-year-old, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, I could tell you the other task too, if you like, we call it the contents task. So what you do is you get a box that's really familiar to kids. So um, originally the studies were done in <laughs> England where Smarties come in tubes. <laughs> and so you, you would bring out a Smarties tube and you would say, <laughs> um, but you know, we could do the same thing here in Canada with there Smarties boxes. So Wait, you are take Smarties out a- made out of chocolate? Are we talking about they Canadians? Are. Yeah, the, no, the Canadian ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And British. And British, as okay. Because in the and US, turn, we have a lot of out. US followers. I know, they're rockets. Rocket, I know, yeah. I know. And, it gets very Yeah, confusing. sorry. So these are like M&Ms. Okay. So let's do it as Smarties or M&Ms or what have okay. you. Uh, so you get this, but but they come in paper bags. I don't know. Anyway, so you get this, you get a really familiar thing. So we get the, uh, we get a Smarties box. And like every three-year-old, <laughs> uh, every three, every preschooler, knows what's inside here. So you say, hey, what do you think's inside this box? And you know what they should say is Smarties. But what's common is that you bring, then you bring out a puppet and you say, okay, here's Elmo. Elmo has never seen inside this box. What will Elmo think is inside the box? And so you know what you should say, of course, is that Elmo is going to look at the Smarties box. And of course, he, just like the kid did, will think that it's Smarties. And then if you show them that, you know, so that, that, that would show an understanding of false belief. But in fact, lots of kids uh, will say, oh, Elmo will think it's crayons or, or whatever the unexpected contents were. Uh, so showing that they don't kind of get that way, oh, he doesn't know that because he didn't see it. And so he should still think the original thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the funny thing is too, that you can ask kids. So you get kids, you say, you ask kids themselves You say, hey, before I showed you what's inside this box, what did you think was inside? Uh, they say a three-year-old will say, oh, crayons. Yeah, <laughs> it was, it was crayons. Uh, it's not, and then it shows the same kind of developmental trajectory of mm-hmm. like the four-year-olds kind of getting about half right. And then um, uh, five-year-olds getting, mm. acing it. Yeah, doing well, doing well. So do false beliefs, are they part of theory of mind? Is or is there a lot more to it? Yeah, it's a big part of theory of mind. If you think about it, you know, it's a big, it's actually a really big part of, I think, a lot of aspects of our understanding of psychology, or of, you know, just human psychology, everyday psychology. So, you know, you can think about it, it's all over the place in art. One of my favorite examples is the end of Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. Romeo comes back to the, you know, the friar had given Juliet a sleeping potion. So everybody would think that she's dead, but really she's just asleep. And she says, and, you know, he sends somebody to go tell Romeo, but that person never gets to Romeo. So Romeo, just like everybody else, think that she's dead, even though she's just sleeping. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he comes back to the crypt and it's like, oh, hey, oh, you're dead. (laughs) And then course tragically kills himself (laughs) while we the viewers are like no she's alive she's alive yeah (laughs) anyway uh so you know so it's all over the place there but you know it's it's the backbone Mm -hmm. of deception 
So whenever, mm. whenever we're trying to deceive someone or being deceived ourselves, obviously the goal is to implant a false belief, you know, get somebody to think something about the world that is not true. Oh. Uh, uh, and so it's a really big part of, you know, just kind of everyday strategic kind of psychology sorts of things. And really it's, you know, so those are, those are a couple of like kind of nasty things it's related to, but it's also related to all these other wonderful things like, you know, recognizing that your friend might have a different perspective on a situation than you do being, which can lead you to be a little bit more solicitous in some cases. Um, so it's just this really big kind of revolution that happens, this kind of basic understanding that, hey, my my knowledge, my mental states are idiosyncratic to me. And they may sometimes be shared, but then there are other times where they might not be shared. And in those cases, I might need to do a little bit more work to get somebody on the same page with me. Like that's a big, that's a big part of that kind of revolution and understanding that happens around men. So it is, it's a really, it is definitely a big part of theory of mind. It's not all there is to theory of mind. There's a ton mm. more that goes into it. But it's, it's a big part of it, and that's probably why I study it. You had one of your studies that I found really fascinating where you looked at executive functions and looked at different cultures. So I believe it was with the with, uh, in, uh, children, um, Chinese children, I believe. That's right, right? yeah. And compared them to U.S. Yeah, children. Yeah, that's right. And there were differences, right? So yeah. can you, we, we spoke a little bit about different ages, but uh, what are you seeing across different cultures? Partly. Just to give a little bit more background on this, uh, when you do this with your three-year-old, um, Cindy, one of the things I think you'll find is that you just can't believe that they get it wrong. It, it just seems so intuitive. And so you just can't believe that they get it wrong. And that feeling that you'll have when you do that is actually shared by, and has been shared by um, you know, developmental psychologists for 30 years, this kind of idea that, wait, there must be something else going on here, that they, it can't just be that they don't get false belief, maybe that there's something else going on with it. And so one of the things they thought was that it's kind of like a cognitive control problem. So, you know, when we ask people to say where somebody's going to look for something, it's really habitual to just say, oh, well, they're going to look where it is. So you have this kind of like habit of you know, pointing to where something is or saying that somebody's going to do something. So saying that somebody's going to have success. And the weird thing in a false belief task is that somebody's not going to have success, that you're going to predict that somebody's going to fail at a pretty simple task. And so some people thought, well, that's actually just kind of a weird thing to do. And maybe what kids are having trouble with is not their understanding of false belief itself, but rather they're just having problems like kind of acting on that knowledge so that they may know it, but they have all these like problems just acting on that knowledge because there's all these habits that they have that, that are more readily available to their responding. And so one of the ways we can measure that is by looking to see whether kids who, who are a little bit better at tasks that require them to overcome those habits, maybe they'll do better on false belief tasks. Um, and in fact, that's true. So if we look at just sort of take a bunch of North American kids from Canada or the United States or Europe or even, um, and we, we give them a battery of tasks that measure their cognitive control and we measure their theory of mind. Well, there's a pretty good correlation between those two things, which has led some people to think like, okay, so maybe that, that thing that I'm saying was this kind of con conceptual revolution that's happening during the preschool years. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's actually just this cognitive control revolution and that and it doesn't really have anything to do with their really true like conceptual understanding of false belief. 
And, but it was hard to tell just by looking at the sort of North American kids. And, but because there were, uh, there were a whole bunch of possible reasons for this correlation. And for the most part, it was in fact, just correlations. So one of the things we wanted to see if there would be a group somewhere in the world to see if maybe that they were expected to have really strong cognitive control, but maybe, and, and, and if they did, would they also have really strong theory of mind? And we thought maybe there were a bunch of reasons, you know, this was like 15 or more years ago now, um, where we, we did the study in China. And we thought there were a whole bunch of reasons to think that Chinese kids, uh, uh, children growing up in Beijing, uh, would have would be a little bit better at cognitive control tasks than their North American counterparts. So if we took kids who were the same age in both places, we had some reasons to think that those that the kids from China would be a little bit better at cognitive control than the North Americans. And if and so we thought, well, if that's going to be true, will they also be better at the false belief tasks? And then that would be evidence for this kind of idea that it's not a real kind of conceptual development that's happening that I've been talking about all along, but rather it's just this kind of cognitive control development that's allowing them to show all the things they know about the mind. Um, so what we did is we went and we gave, we'd, we'd had a bunch of data in the United States where we'd had a really good workup on them. And so we took all the same equipment, all that same equipment over to China and we collaborated with a uh, couple preschools there and we got a big data set. And we found that indeed, uh, the, the the Chinese preschoolers were uh, had advanced. They they performed a lot better on these executive functioning tasks than the North American kids did. They were, you know, sometimes it's uh, interesting to say it this way. They were about six months ahead of the North American kids on their executive on their performance on these executive functioning tasks. Hmm. Why we have no idea, but uh, that is what was true at, on that battery of tasks that we used. Um, huh. But their but their uh, theory of mind scores were exactly the same. Yeah, so the theory of mind scores were they were like plotting the lines; they were just right on top of each other. So there was there were no no differences at all in culture between the th in the theory of mind test, even though there were these big differences in cognitive control, which made us think, okay, it's probably not just cognitive control then, because if it was just cognitive control, we would have seen these, these kids from China doing great at it, but that's not what we saw. They were, they were not six months ahead in their theory of mind. They were just right on with the North American kids. So does that have something to do with the prefrontal cortex and the development and like would you be able to speak a little bit about the um, the development and how that's how, like why we start to see these differences at at three, four, and five? Like what's happening in the brain? Yeah, this is my other um, big area of research is trying to understand the neural mechanisms, like the neurocognitive developments that are really important for theory of mind development during the preschool years. You know, one of the things we were really inspired by actually was those were those studies showing that there's such cross-cultural similarity in theory of mind development, which suggests that, of course, you know, experience matters. And we've already talked about ways in which experience matters through language and stuff like that. And um, but still, even though there are these kind of broad um, even though there are these small kind of differences that we can attribute to experience, there are these kind of broad similarities where everybody's kind of going through the same trajectory at around the same time, uh, broad similarities anyway. 
Um, and so we kind of thought, well, maybe there's, maybe those are at least a little bit under some kind of like maturational control that there might be some sort of, you know, brain developments that are typical to preschoolers that are happening around that time that maybe are really important for theory of mind development. One of the things we, we use is, um, EEG. So we use what we call denser EEG, where we've got 129, um, leads that are evenly distributed across the scalp. And we we just record EEG while it's resting, while kids are resting. And that gives us some kind of idea about their brain development. And when we put it all together, actually, with some kind of statistical analyses, we can often find out um, the sort of um, extent to which for any given kid, there's a coherent activity in any given part of their brain contributing to the overall power in the EEG that we're seeing at the scalp. And what we did is we did a study where we just recorded kids resting EEG and we also rec recorded them uh, or we gave them a set of theory of mind tasks. And what we found was that there were, just as you were sort of suggesting, Marianne, uh, there were particular areas of the brain uh, that were where development in that area as measured by power that was attributable to that specific area of cortex um, was correlated with how well they did at theory of mind tasks. So, and this area was, it was in the prefrontal, it was actually this um, area called the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. And it's that area that turns out to also be really important for theory of mind in grownups. So, uh, uh, so if you're a grownup and you start reasoning about other people's mental states, well, then you're probably going to be activating that dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, along with a whole bunch of other areas that are important for solving those problems, including the um, temporal parietal juncture, this kind of posterior area there. And uh, yeah, what we found was that uh, development that could be attributable actually to those two areas that I just mentioned, the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex and the temporal parietal juncture were uh, correlated with kids' theory of mind performance. I'd love to contrast that now with, we've been talking about when it's, you know, a child who's healthy and, you know, there aren't any developmental issues, but what happens when it's not, you know, a child perhaps is autistic? Um, that was one of the most common questions yeah. I received from parents um, when they found out that we were going to yeah. talk about this. Yeah. They, they wanted to know in their own child like, who's struggling with that, um, you know, what happened sure. and why are these struggles there and what can they do to help? Mm. I'm not sure what the, what the right term is, but it's a very, lots of folks with, um, who are, you know, families that are, that have, that are affected with, you know, they have an autistic child or, or some, um, they often notice that there is this real difference that where they are, they seem to be struggling to, think about other people's mental states or give, or give consideration to people's mental states. And in fact, like way back at this sort of early, in the early days of theory of mind research, when it, there was a famous study that showed that if you give these kind of what the, like the false belief tasks that I was talking about earlier, what you'll find is that um, individuals with autism uh, really struggle with that task. They can do lots of other tasks that actually seem to be equivalently complicated, but when you give them, when you bring in that kind of um, people's mental states, beliefs part, they seem to suffer, they not suffer, but they seem to have specific trouble with that part of it. And so that led to a whole bunch of speculation that maybe autism is characterized at least in part by real like theory of mind different in the extent to which they are 
either able to or willing to or interested in other people's mental states uh, for what for reasons that I, I don't I don't know are well known. So we're still trying to work out what that might be. Um, one of the interesting things, I think that one of the early promises of this kind of research that, you know, kind of matching up the stuff with ASD and, and the stuff that I was doing or I was talking about was that, well, if we just knew where, you know, if ASD was associated with this like particular difficulty with reasoning about other people's mental states, and we knew that reasoning about mental states was associated with a very specific neural network, then maybe what we would be able to do is find the kind of hole in the head, if you will, of folks with ASD. But that just turns out to be completely untrue. There is no hole in the head for ASD. They have an intact dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. They have an intact uh, temporal parietal juncture. It's not active the same way it is when uh, when they're reasoning about other people's mental states. So there's been a lot of um, uh, you know cognitive neuroscience work that's been looking at that. There's a lot that's, that's done that, but it's not. But it's not like it's not there. It's just being used for. It's being used for different things. And so I think a really interesting and important thing to uh, you know think about is that there's a when we're dealing with developmental um, issues like ASD, the brain is developing in this really dynamic way with whatever biases and uh, uh, capabilities and, and proclivities it has, it's capitalizing on those and it's plastic. So it's making sense of, it's making sense of its world the best way it can. And so an adult ASD brain that's been developing in the context of ASD and strength and, and, and difficulties that are all associated with that, it's just, it's just a different thing. And, and, and what we really should be trying to focus on is thinking about the um, from a from a science perspective, is thinking about the maybe the different processes that are going on there, rather than kind of trying to kind of you know diagnose where the particular deficit is. If you see what I mean. Yeah, so the so I don't really know that much about AS or sorry ADHD, but that's a really interesting one for us right now. We're super interested in this right now uh, for for lots of reasons. Um, partly because one of the things we think might be really important for theory of mind, another kind of neurobiological aspect that we think might be really important for for successful reasoning about other people's mental states is um, dopamine and dopaminergic functioning. So we think that that might be really interesting. And so we've got a bunch of studies right now that where we're trying to kind of um, measure um, things that would be related to dopaminergic functioning and seeing whether they're connected with uh, theory of mind development. But the reason ASD is such an interesting case is because there's a little bit of evidence suggesting that they, that um, ADHD may be associated with um, uh, lower dopamine levels right. due to maybe maybe some genetic factors, maybe some other factors are contributing to that. So are you looking at genetic variations or like, how do you study? So we've looked at, um, we have a, we have some work suggesting that there is some um, uh, uh, dopamine D4 receptor 
variation predicts, uh, so long alleles tend to be associated with um, ADHD, and they also tend to be associated, we, we found evidence that they were associated with poorer theory of mind. So how do you do, how would you do that if, if you were, if someone was um, in your research group how, or in your research lab or a participant? Yeah, we collaborated with, um, we collaborated with the genetics lab to do that work. Hmm. I've been really interested in dopamine. So are there other ways of measuring dopamine in, in the lab or like in, in, in humans anyways? I would... <laughs> I'll be excited to talk to you about it, um, if, especially if you know of any others. So um, spontaneous eye blink is another. Okay. So... Mm-hmm. Um, so just if you're resting, uh, how much, how often you blink is associated with kind of your, do- you know, current dopamine level. Uh, so it's not clear whether, you know, there's a lot of things that are make it complicated to really interpret it, but uh, tonic versus phasic and some stuff like that. But, uh, but it is kind of, uh, but it's kind of neat. Uh, it's, it's pretty, it's a pretty reliable uh, marker. Um of dopamine functioning it's not it's not great obviously and so there's there's it's a noisy one but that's one and what's great for us is that we get it for free from the eeg caps because you know whenever you blink you have this massive what we call the electrooculogram. so your eye muscles all shoot out this huge potential that ruins your eeg data but we were <laughs> but we were like oh we can use all that ruined EEG data to find out how much people are blinking and we had a we had a paper <laughs> showing that you know there was this negative correlation between eye blink and um, theory of mind scores in preschoolers. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> Every parent listening is more aware now of how often they're blinking. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's, impossible to, it's impossible to talk about it yeah. without that. But the other thing that we're trying right now, just kind of like fidgeting, tonic, tonic movement. So the, one mm-hmm. of the things that mm-hmm. uh, you'll notice when you're sitting around a table with friends or it, but we notice it, especially when kids come in their lab, but some kids can just sit statue still. They can just sit there and they listen and they pay attention and they follow all the stuff. And other kids are all over the place, just bouncing off the walls, kind of tapping and fidgeting and doing all this stuff. It's, it's, it's a really clear thing. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that developmental psychologists tend to pride themselves on is being able to get those fidgeters to like stay focused and like, okay, we're going to do this task. And it's just kind of natural variability. But we think actually that might be related to dopamine functioning that, you know, how wiggly kids that we call it wiggliness, how wiggly kids Mm. are might be related to dopamine functioning. And so (laughs) right now we're trying to characterize their wiggliness, which has been much, 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 much harder than we had hoped. Uh, So, uh, so, but we're on to try Mm. Try number five now, I think. So uh, I'll have to ask you to stay tuned for whether we get results with this or not. Um, <laughs> it's just turned out to be much more difficult than we thought. How about one of those, wa- the watches that move around, that you can- Yeah, that's right. Around. So what we're really interested in is as they do it right, right here. So that would measure like what they do with their hand, I guess. Like we could get in what they call an actigraph. If the kid like, you know, gets up, 
and, and starts bouncing all around. So like, you'll see a little bit on that, but you know, actually the watch doesn't move when I just get up out of my chair. So whereas all the rest of the body's moving like crazy and that could be a really big effort uh, or that could be a big sign of how wiggly they are. So anyway. Oh yes, 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 yes. It is, yeah, yeah, they're fidgety. That's right. Well, it's pretty natural uh, to be fidgety. And yeah, so people report being more fidgety after taking medications that create a dopamine blockade. So um, so there's, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of sort of almost pharmacological evidence to suggest that that dopamine is related to this fidgetiness. Yeah. Yeah. So we're trying to capitalize on that to see whether, and, you know, every developmental psychologist has, has noticed this <laughs> just, but you know, it's been, it's been a nuisance rather than something that we might actually study. But it's not necessarily mm -hmm. something that we want to prevent. Like you said, you would like them to sit still, but like, if we see our kids fidgeting, I think, we're trying, we're trying to figure out why, but that it, it, it could be um, totally. Just natural variation. Natural. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's any point in getting your kid to not fidget. Yeah. I've seen these um, uh, fidgeting but, chairs too, that you can get where you can sit on them. Yes. And the kid yes. can move around more. And... Yeah. There is this kind of belief that if you, mm. if you let fidgeters fidget, then they're going to be le better learners or something like that. I looked a couple years ago and was able to find no data supporting that claim. If a parent's listening, I'm just wondering if our little segue into dopamine, if we, we made it clear as to why we. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So there's two. So there's two. The main reason I got in, I was interested in it is because it, the two areas that I was talking about, the dorsal media prefrontal cortex and the, um, and the right temporal parietal juncture are actually really quite rich mm -hmm. in dopamine receptors, uh, especially you know these kind of um, D, D2 and D4 receptors. So as far as I know, uh, and 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 so and he healthy dopaminergic functioning is really important for the healthy development of those regions. So we kind of thought, okay, there might be something to that. But then there's also a, a more that 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 might be a kind of another way of trying to understand what are the kind of neural neurodevelopmental events that are happening around this time that might be giving rise to this, you know, this real, this big change in social mm -hmm. cognition that they're having mm -hmm. at around that time. So that's what we, yeah. that was the main kind of idea there. But then there was also this other idea, which is, you know, what is, what are the kinds of things that, what are the sort of like cognitive and psychological things that dopamine is really important for and dopamine as far as, there's a lot it's a so it's important for reward related learning as i'm sure uh uh well as you may know it's it's mm -hmm. famously important for reward related learning but the thing one of the things that's really important for too is what we call um it's like set shifting or changing your mind about something so if you need to change the way you're thinking about a particular system or a particular situation then dopamine seems to dopamine mm -hmm. signaling from uh, seems to provide one of those kinds of um, 
uh, mm-hmm. signals, I guess, to the to the, to your system that okay, we need to we need to adapt, we need to change how we're thinking about the situation. And in a way, that's kind of what you have to do when you're mm-hmm. thinking about theory of mind, right? Like for the most part, we just go through li- our lives thinking that oh, well, you know, Maxi and I, going back to my previous example, there, we have the same, we understand the same thing about where the chocolate is. We all know it's in the right side of the kitchen. And so we just go through our lives saying, oh, yeah, we're on the same page about this. But then that moment where Maxi goes away and the chocolate moves and you're like, oh, I need to think about this differently mm-hmm. now. I need to think about Maxi's, Maxi's mental state as being different from my own. And so we think that that might really require this dopamine, um, you know, healthy mm-hmm. dopaminergic functioning to get you to not perseverate on your previous belief, but rather to change the way you're thinking about this in order to think about it in this other way. Uh, So that's, so we think that the, so not only is the kind of developmental, um, it might play this important developmental role in the just structural integrity of these regions that we think are really important for theory of mind, but also it may like the reason for that may be because of this functional role it's playing in changing the kind of Mm -hmm. set that you're using or the, or the framework that you're using to think about these problems. That's so interesting. I've been reading about um, dopamine and I would just recommend the book, The Molecule of More. If anyone Mm -hmm. has an interest in dopamine and reading more about dopamine, it's a really great, um, great read and very accessible and gives lots of great examples and talks about ADHD. Very cool. So that's a great resource. Yeah, 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 Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, You've mentioned sure. a few times that experience does matter when it comes to theory of mind. Um, again, thinking of the audience and the parents, I, I there were two sets of questions, mostly from parents wanting to know what type of experiences they should be offering. And I think you've touched upon that a little bit. Um, but I had an email from um, a, an educator who works in a daycare, and she was curious to know how she could kind of continue nurturing this and what type of experiences she sh- they should be providing within daycares. I'm, I'm assuming it's this, it's very similar to parents, but now you're, you have a group, large group of kids, so you might have different ways of, of nurturing this. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really great question. I think that anything that, um, you know, I would think about why you would want to nurture this. And of course, one of the big things I think that theory of mind is really good for provides an important perspective on is conflict negotiation, right? So for the most part, we have conflict mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. one person thinks or wants or you know something that we don't think or want. And, we, and there's some sort of uh, necessity of one person getting what they need or think or want or it being true what they need or think or want. And so, so one of the things that, you know, in a, maybe in a daycare setting or in an educational setting, promoting perspective taking, promoting that kind of like, well, why do you think she thinks that kind of thing might be really helpful for trying to get somebody to understand another mm-hmm. person's perspective, which can then say, oh, okay, uh, maybe maybe that can sort of lead to a resolution uh, or a compromise or something that may, that may help make sense. So um, I would just offer a couple caveats about this that first of all, there's going to be individual differences in the extent to which kids can uptake that kind of, why do you think that? And that could be because of just how easy or hard they, anyone finds it to do to take that. The other thing I would offer too is to say that because mm-hmm. theory of mind stuff does rely at least to some extent on those cognitive skills, those cognitive skills are re- of those sort of like 
cognitive control and set switching and things like that. Those kinds of skills are really hard to marshal if you are stressed out. Mm -hmm. So if, if you're in a moment where it's, you're emotionally really aroused. That is not your most perspective taking moment. That is not the best time to be thinking about other people's thoughts. Your own thoughts maybe are just too salient. You're too upset. You're not, you're kind of shut down on that theory of mind stuff. So uh, if you're going to do some theory of mind work in those moments (laughs) and promote Mm. perspective taking, you want to do it after the temperatures turned down a little bit. Not not immediately after the the child all the way the wrong time not immediately like come over here you yeah why do you think she thinks that we got to turn we got to turn the temperature down before we do that so it can be a step that somebody takes after they've calmed down and you know and we're going to revisit and we're going to we're going to come to a resolution so it's not super useful in the in maybe in in a stressful moment but it might be something that you could do post that moment that would still maybe um, prevent future moments from spinning out of control. Mm-hmm. Parents who have more than one child are also saying, ah, that's what I need to do. <laughs> that makes yeah. a lot of sense because with siblings it's, in the house, yeah, they're just always sure. arguing, right? And sometimes it's hard that's to right. know how to support that and what you can do as a parent and what you can yeah. offer the child. But I, I love that you're, right. you're showing us that we need to let them, whatever, <laughs> let the emotions like cool down a little bit and then there's a lot that we can be asking our kids to help them understand the perspective of their yeah, sibling. After, yeah, mm-hmm. after the fact, when they've got a little bit more resource mm-hmm. there, I think that that's an important mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, It, it might yeah. not make the, the conflict go away. <laughs> They're still siblings. <laughs> but, that's right. <laughs> however. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, so one of the things we didn't mention when we were talking about um, experience, but there is a pretty, uh, pretty good literature suggesting that kids with siblings tend to develop theory of mind mm. faster huh. than kids who are or firstborn so. versus thirdborn yeah. or yeah. Born? yeah yeah that's um, right third. so firstborn <laughs> so secondborns tend to de- right so if you have an, a near aged sibling although i'm not sure it's even the firstborns laterborns i'm not i i'd have to i think we you just asked do you have a mm. near age sibling so you could be four and your kids two mm. or your your sibling is two or or even a little closer, uh, or you could be four and you could have a sibling who's six, I mm. think is how that that's that goes. Should look that up mm. actually to get a little bit more precise about that. But there is evidence that that um if you've got near aged siblings, you're gonna do a little bit better at theory of mind. And the the thought is is exactly what you were talking about, Cindy, that uh that they have all these opportunities for conflict and conflict negotiation. So they're getting like direct evidence all the time that somebody's got um, different thoughts and wants from their own. Mm-hmm. So they're getting that direct evidence all the time. So they're, so it's very salient to them and that's helping them kind of, you know, reason about the, the, uh, that mechanism. I love that. I love the, when we can mechanisms. get ideas for when they're fighting and why it's actually a good, a good thing. And we can, okay, look, they're actually developing <laughs> cognitive yeah, skills. Right. Right. The brain is let them argue. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Step that's back. Right. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. They're getting this direct evidence that, hey, I don't think the same things right. you think. Mm. I don't want the same things you want. Um, and so that's that's good evidence for you. 
I'm thinking of, you know, emotion regulation skills and how important it is for parents to model these types of skills. Does, does the same thing apply with theory of mind? Is there something within, let's say, caregivers who are in the child's environment, is there something that we could be modeling or saying out loud when we're having a discussion or conflict with somebody that can help them see this, our perspective? Or it might not be the same, I guess. It's hard to think out loud. <laughs> I, I think I don't I don't know if there's evidence on the question, but I would, you know, I think that what evidence there is would suggest that mm. um it certainly would be wouldn't hurt. Yeah, you know, so um wouldn't hurt. <laughs> the, yeah. we do know that kids learn a lot through observation generally, right? So there's a lot that we learn through observation. And there's a lot, you know, one of the a recent finding actually in this area was that so a lot of people have looked at temperament and how temperament might affect um, theory of mind development. And I think that the the intuitive guess mm. was that kids who are really gregarious and outgoing, what we call surgent sometimes, would be um, would be the ones who are more likely to be getting all the social experience and learning all about the theory of mind. Uh, but in fact, that wasn't the case. In fact, it was the kids who were shy who tended to uh, do a little bit better at that theory of mind uh, oh. relative to the kids who uh, were not. And it's, you know, there's some complications around the mm -hmm. finding, but like, but you know, it's kind of generally true. And the thought is that it's because they're, instead of getting like involved in the emotionality and in, in, of the moment, they are observant and they're watching and they're saying, okay, they did that because they think this and they did that because they think that, you know, they're sort of, they're putting, they're sort of putting the puzzle together from the sidelines. So, you know, and of course, kids are typically on the sidelines of adult conversations, whether they're shy or not. And so one could imagine that adult conversations that are making, that are trying to make sense of what other people are, why other people are doing the things they're doing and what role mental states play in that, that would probably be pretty valuable. Yeah. I mean, just kind of extrapolating from the, the, the handful of studies that we know about. Yeah. Really interesting yeah. research. Um, I'm enjoying this conversation. It's one of those that like, it's going to be hard to stop, but um, I, I'm thinking the last question that I personally have is the importance of play. We talk a lot about play within early childhood. Is this something, if we see that our child's around the age of five and they're really struggling with this and perhaps they're an only child and perhaps, you know, with COVID, they're not really having those opportunities to play with kids. Um, this has been a common question on my end coming from parents. Like with COVID, what sort of social skills are children going to lack on? So perhaps there's a parent listening, wondering how they can support this again. And we, we've we've mentioned quite a few, um, but would play be a great way to, 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 you know, practice this, I guess you could say. And, and I know that there are cognitive skills involved as well. Um, but can, you know, through play with teddy bears and animals and mm -hmm. whatever it is, figurines create those sort of scenarios. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of, yeah, you kind of, I think that you've got it. So there is a, there is a correlation between what mm -hmm. we call pretend play uh, well, what everybody calls pretend play, but we, but there's this particular kind of pretend play. Uh, so pretend play is definitely connected with theory of mind development. I don't know if anybody has done the work to show what the directionality of that is, whether it's kids with great theory of mind do a lot of pretend play or kids with, who do a lot of pretend play wind up getting a lot of theory of mind because of that experience they're giving themselves. So nobody's really sure about why the two are connected, as far as I know. But I haven't kept up with this literature very well to know whether anybody's really dug in and got the kind of 
done the work that would allow us to establish that causal association mm-hmm. between one and the other. But and so the challenge is that both are um, both are plausible to me. It seems seems to me that if I had you know if I was really motivated to reason about other people's mental states and there were no other mental states around, you know, no other people around, well, my <laughs> teddy bear would be uh, you know subject yeah. to some you know drama. Yeah. I love that. Uh, it's true, but that's a great way to recreate or create scenarios that they might not. Expect. Yeah. 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 To create scenarios. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there's a lot. So there is a lot of work suggesting that. I think that, you know, kids sort of, I think that the best thing parents can do is give their mm-hmm. just kids opportunities for that. Um, one of the, you know, one of the findings in the pretend play literature is that, well, one of my favorite uh, phenomena, I guess, from the pretend play literature is this thing called imaginary companions mm-hmm. uh, or pretend friends, you might call them. So, you know, around the age of four, sometimes, sometimes a little bit earlier, sometimes a little bit later, a lot of kids will um, pipe up with an imaginary companion. Uh, so uh, have, do, you, do you all know what I'm yeah. talking about, these imaginary companions? So they're like, Invisible. My imaginary friend Judy when I was. Oh, you had up. one. Yeah, right. I yeah, one, yeah, right. So Judy was this imaginary companion for you who, uh, you know, had whatever characteristics. Do you do you remember anything about Judy? Yeah, it's weird. I actually remember when it kind of when I decided that I had a friend. <laughs> I was at the front door, and my, I think my mom was talking to me. I was like, hmm. "Oh yeah, here's Judy." <laughs> I was old enough, so I, I don't know at what age. <laughs> you typically have but i, I remember wow. being old, old enough, enough to remember normally yeah so yeah. like around so like four or five, four or five and they and they will hmm. persist sometimes for a while yeah they tend to kind of yeah. go away i mean four and seven is where we sort of where they're hmm. most likely to be studied but they can but they don't yeah anyway go ahead can you so you remember quite a lot about yeah, Judy. It, I don't. Yeah, wanna... I remember. I just remember yeah. it. <laughs> Judy Pop. I don't think she lasted long. Right. So, so you can I... interview kids at the time when they've got them, and they have wow. these elaborate stories about their imaginary friend, their their background history, their all this kind of stuff. That turns yeah. out to be connected with theory of mind. But again, mm-hmm. we don't know what the directionality of that is. But you know, if you see your kid doing that, so sometimes there was a there was a little bit of there was a little while where. Um, parents were concerned when mm-hmm. they would see their kids with these imaginary companions. Well, they must not have any real friends or, or, um, you know, actually it kind of looks mm-hmm. like a weird, like hallucination kind of thing. And so they would worry about it in a way. Mm-hmm. And there's absolutely no reason to worry about mm-hmm. these imaginary companions, you know, when the kids get these imaginary companions, but they're actually a super, they're, they're common. More than 60% of people have something that could be called an imaginary companion. Um, and uh, so personified objects is another one where like, I'd never had like an imaginary, imaginary companion, uh, like an invisible imaginary companion, but oh, I yeah, did I have a that. teddy bear that, uh, yeah. that, that had a life, like it had, it had a life, it had a rich interior background, it had mm. likes, it had dislikes, it had mm. beliefs, it, you know, it had all this kind of stuff. So, I mean, we do all that. And um and there's no reason to um, mm. to discourage that, but there um, discourage it at all. But one of the things that I, you know, I had a colleague who did this work. One of the things that they found that would actually was really bad for it is if parents tried to get involved. Mm. So if you try to uh, mm. 
if you try to interact with their imaginary companion or something like that habitually, that's not, <laughs> that doesn't tend to be a winner for the kid. So, you know, let your kid do their thing on the imagine with, mm, with their imagination, <laughs> their pretend don't make, you know, don't worry about it, but also don't feel like mm. that's something you got to be involved in because that tends to, that tends to, uh, um, make the imaginary companion disappear. So just something that I was um, wondering when we were talking about personalities and, you know, we, I was thinking that we have personality tests online and temperament tests. Is there any way to mm -hmm. measure your theory of mind? Like, are there these <laughs> theory of mind tests? Or no, that... no, there's <laughs> yeah. not. Not that I know of. <laughs> there was for a while. So for a while, but mm -hmm. I don't encourage people to look at it because I, because I use this test in the lab and I don't want them to have any practice with it. So, uh, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, so there was a test for a while where, um, it was called the reading the minds in the eyes task. So that what you would do is you would just get the, this was done by actually Simon Baron Cohen, the same fellow who advanced the theory of mind, uh, explanation for autism, uh, ASD. Uh, he had this theory of mind in the eyes task where it was just a picture cut out from magazines of just the eye regions of people's faces. And, uh, your job is to try to figure out what the person's thinking, you know, and, and they would arrange these. Um, and, and you could do that. And actually, even though it's, it sort of seems like a, uh, a sort of arbitrary kind of test, it actually turns out to do a great job being predictive of, of a lot of different things, uh, which is, which is interesting um, on that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a little different from the false belief task and this mm -hmm. kind of complicated, reasoning about who was where, when, and trying to keep all that in mind. So it's a little bit different from that. Um, but it's still, um, everybody's got one. Everybody has a theory of mind. And, and like our tasks are, are sort of about diagnosis theory. Like the tasks that we use, especially in the developmental domain, are really about diagnosing whether, you know, where a kid's at in their development of a theory of mind. It's not like, it, it doesn't really measure how, how hard they find it necessarily or how mm. easy they find it or how much they like to do it or anything like that. It just measures kind of whether they can do it. And um, so we give, so, if, you know, mm. uh, we give these theory of false belief tasks to a bunch of grownups. Well, everybody's going to do pretty well for the most part. Um, so, mm. so, you, you, you know, and so we'd say, well, you've all got a theory of mine. And it's probably true that you do. Um, but but there are starting to be adult studies of theory of mind. You know, I'd say over the last 20 years or so, people have started to really think about, are there big individual differences in adults and how, how well adults do it? But these tend to be what we call reaction time tasks. So just how fast can you do it? How accurately can you do it when you have to do it fast? Um, do you make mistakes in, uh, do you make mistakes when you have to do it fast? Do you, do you like doing it? Do you, you know, so we, there are a bunch of measures that are like that. I love that they ask, do you like doing it? <laughs> well, you know, it's just how, how motivated yeah. are you to do it? Right. Cause there, there is a difference. You probably all have known folks in your lives who are, um, let's say, I don't want to say low on theory of mind, but I want to say something like they just don't seem to care as mm. much about what other people are thinking. Mm. And then other people where that dial is turned way yeah, up. True. All they do is all they do is think about other what other people mm -hmm. think, and there's a you know and probably neither is very good, like <laughs> in, in terms of just like be, making friends because sometimes <laughs> it can feel pretty intrusive to 
uh, always be wondering about what somebody's thinking. Mm. And then, you know, if you're always doing it, it can feel kind of intrusive. But if you're never doing it, I feel like you don't care. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was going to ask uh, if so, that's you why know, you went into it. <laughs> is, is it something? Because I'm not very no, good at are it. You really into, are you always thinking about it? Are you always thinking? I am not. No, <laughs> no. I would say I'm on the low end. <laughs> yeah, on the low end of caring. About it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, that makes me sound cold. But uh, I'm just, I, I, I don't wrap myself up in mm-hmm. the ins and outs of other people's thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I I do have this belief that if somebody wants, you know, I, I hope I'm doing a reasonable job and not missing the obvious things, but if somebody has something complicated that they're feeling or thinking and it's related to me, I hope they'll tell mm-hmm. me. <laughs> I feel the same. Yeah. <laughs> I love <laughs> so I'm not going to yeah. guess. <laughs> that's always a good warning. It's good to know and it's good to let people know. <laughs> I think that that's right. Well, because, you know, just coming back to the whole idea, it's just so complicated mm-hmm. and you never know what somebody's thinking for real, right? Every like all of the reason we're interested in it, I think is because we don't have a definite answer mm-hmm. in it. Like it's never, you know, it's a false belief task, sure. Although even there there's there's some wiggle room, right? Oh, well maybe he heard it. Mm-hmm move from one cabinet to the other, or maybe he noticed that, you know, like a detective might that, well, that cabinet, you know, the old cabinet is slightly ajar. And so maybe it's moved and there's only one other place or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, we could do this all day long. It's not a determined, it's a probabilistic inference Mm -hmm. that we have to make anytime we're reasoning about other people's mental states. Sometimes those probabilities can be pretty high. And, you know, if you're asking me, I'm happy to make high probability inferences about other people's mental states, but sometimes the probability gets really low. And when the probability about what somebody, you know, that you know what somebody else is thinking about gets pretty low, well, then the possibilities are endless, right? It could be this, it could Mm -hmm. be this, it could be this, it could be this, it could be this. And that's a challenging uh, circumstance to find yourself Mm -hmm. in, I think. Mm -hmm. Some people find that really intriguing, and I find it really. hard. Mm. I see that. <laughs> um, yeah, I find it a little overwhelming. <laughs> I know that you always have ongoing studies at your lab. Can you please um, let us know how we can reach you? We're also, um, our lab is called the Early Experience yeah. Lab at, at Queens. And we are, we have a website, earlyexperiencelab.ca, all one word. And I think your hashtag is the same for Instagram. I think it's Early Experience Lab. <laughs> is that right? Early Experience <laughs> yeah. Lab at hit. Yeah. On Instagram. Well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? (laughs) I will add on the show notes uh, access to all these websites and your Instagram. I will add also um, links to your research because I know that some of our listeners like to dig deeper and and read the literature. Uh, uh, Sure. I'd be. How are your studies, I'm assuming, are all in person given the work that you do? In non pandemic times, yes. We we do it all in, we have a on campus um, playroom that kids come to and we usually videotape kids while they're there or or uh, record their brain activity or whatever we can do with them uh, it, right in our right in our comfortable lab um, of course during pandemic times we've been doing all of our stuff online lately so you are able to do it online yeah we're How able to work? do some stuff online so um, we do a moderated so we just schedule a meeting with um families uh to meet on zoom and then we get them to set their computer up in a certain way and then we've got 
Um, so it's, we, we get them to use a laptop. So that's the only, that's, that's a problem for us right now is that we can only use mm -hmm. laptops. But um, so we've programmed all of our false belief tasks and all of our cognitive control tasks. And, and then we look at, we look at, and we've been really interested in some of the more in interaction stuff and how, how experience might be affecting that. So we have kid, we have parents talk with their kids about some stuff that we've been thinking about lately, mm -hmm. some, uh, and then we record those conversations and we code those later. And huh. that's helping us to understand a little bit more about how, how kids immediate social interactions might mm -hmm. be, uh, might be affecting their social cognition just 15 minutes later. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So if parents are interested, they can click on the links yeah. to join your yeah. studies. Perfect. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you for joining us today. That was a really fun oh, it was, conversation. It was my pleasure. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. That was really fun. Thank you. <laughs>